Hans Edward was just leading, and there were a number of them that had to do with the law of God and the benefits that come from the law of God. I'd like you to turn back, if you will, to the reading Ed just did in Psalm 19. Those of you that picked up an outline, um, it, uh, it goes with the introduction, but I didn't put it on there. But anyway, if you look at Psalm 19, I'm going to, and you may have noticed in the bulletin, uh, by the way, welcome everybody who's here tonight, and I think we have a really good number for a Sunday night especially. I'm glad you're here. But uh, anyway, I, I said in the bulletin I was going to do a short series of lessons on self-control. Uh, I won't mention the term self-control. I may not mention it again, but I certainly won't more than once or twice near the end of the lesson. And yet, this really serves as lesson one in that series. You'll notice that um, the idea in, and I'm not even sure how I called it, uh, I just called it love for the Lord's law. But when I originally titled this, it was self-control begins with a love for God's law. And so, we're going to use this. And I'm going to talk about, especially in this lesson, um, I'm going to talk about David. been doing, and I was talking with Montel this afternoon, I've been doing some meditating about, about David. And I know David, to many people, is a favorite character in the Bible, and deservedly so. And when we look at David, of course, we look at someone we would consider to be, you know, a good person, a great person, etc., and thinking back to this morning's lesson, remember the, the, the caricature of the guy looking at the mirror, he sees his image, he asks the question, ultimately, am I holy? I hope that you're giving that some personal contemplation, not just today, but you have been over the last maybe however long since we announced that, we first announced that. I hope you're asking yourself, am I a holy person? And you're being honest about that. You're, you're honestly answering where you perhaps are not and where you are. You know? and, as, and this morning as we were looking at the idea of a holy person being someone who stands out. Well, David stands out. And as we look at David, we might look at David from the standpoint of his own personal struggles with holiness. I think all of us, if we look in the beginning of his life, would say, man, what a champion of faith. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a zoo. I assume most everybody has. You ever looked at a bear, a lion? Those are some ferocious, mean beasts. To have the kind of faith that says, God is with me. I'll take this rock and I'll take this sling. I'll go out after him. God is going to help me. God is going to be with me. That's faith. And as a teenager, probably, young man anyway, to look at... King Saul and say, you know, God was with me when I went out against the bear and against the lion, and he's going to be with me against this giant. Montel and I watched the San Antonio Spurs. You don't have to like them, but <laughs> we watched them, we liked them. And they've got a young player from over in Europe, and he's about 7'3", maybe a shade over 7'3". He weighs right at 300 pounds, no fat. He's a huge guy. From his wrist to the end of his fingertip is right at 18 inches. He palms a basketball, his hand you know, wounds all the way around it. He's a huge guy. They've got another guy on the team that's a little under six feet. He's just little guy for basketball. When he stands next to this guy, it looks like a normal adult standing next to maybe a first grader. 
He's huge. Now, I think about David, little guy, by the Bible's estimation, going out against seven three. This Goliath was at least two feet higher than that. I think about the faith it takes. Now, why I say all of that? Because David's soul was in tune with God. I can fight a lion. I can fight a bear. I can fight a giant. I, the battle is the Lord's. I'm fine. I got this. And then, I could, like I said to Montel, you know, you're that great a person. You're that holy an individual. You stand out like that. You go out on a rooftop and you see a woman bathing. And you're like, man, i got to have her. And he kills her husband and everything else. And you, know, and you look at that and you say, how does that guy get there? And when I look at that, I look at the idea of reality. I would venture to say that all of us, especially a Sunday night crowd, can go back in our memories and find great victories, great stands for truth and faith. And if we're honest, we can find tremendous failures. And if we do all of that, we'd be just like David. And we struggle, if we are honest, I think most of us, if not, we have in the past, struggled with our own personal holiness and being everything God would have me to be. And that would be David. I'll share this with you. I've said this to Montel and I've said it to other people. You know, the Psalms of David that are written in the first part of his life tend to be the most favorite Psalms of people. Like... Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And they're beautiful psalms, and they're great psalms, and they're great statements of faith. But they don't happen to be my favorite. My favorite psalms are the ones that seem to be written later in his life, after he's gone through all of the struggles, and after, if you look at Psalm 19 and verse 7 with me, when you will find in his life statements like this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, reviving the soul is the idea. The fear of the Lord is clean, verse 9, enduring forever. When you look at things like that, what David seems to be saying in Psalms like this is this. If your soul has gotten to a place where it doesn't need to be, if you've gotten in your life spiritually where you don't need to be, and it was, it is, as it were, that you need to be revived, brought back to life spiritually, it doesn't matter if the world sees that or not. I mean, we can get to a point where we're good at being a Christian, and I'm going to explain that. We go through the motions and what everybody sees because of the language we have and the things we do and we go to church and we do this and we do that. We're good at being a Christian as far as the world is concerned. But we know inside here, I'm not where I need to be. The world may think I am. The world may see me as being fine, but I'm not fine. And in fact... What's happening to me is I'm drifting further and further away from God. Even though I don't stop going through the motions, I mean, you know, I've been going to church, I mean, me personally. I'm 56 years old. 
I'll be 57 years old, you know, here before too awful long. And I've been going to church regularly since I was 17. It's what I do. And for a lot of you, it's even longer than that. It's what you do. But that's not the holiness we're talking about. And when we look at David, that's not the level of commitment we're talking about. No. Go over with me to Psalm 119. And if you want to just turn here, I'm going to go away from it and come back and so forth during the lesson. But I'm going to stay in Psalm 119 as the foundation for the lesson for the rest of the time. No, we want to get to the point where... And and I I want you to listen to this carefully. Look at Psalm 119 and begin in verse 97 with me. When David breaks out, and this is not the only time he does this, but where David breaks out in this statement, Oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how I love your law. And the longest chapter in the Bible, and certainly the longest psalm by far, is written to talk about the love of God. You can go home and check me on this. But if you notice, Psalm 119 is 176 verses long, and every single verse talks about the law of God and uses a different term, judgment, statutes, precepts, etc. But he talks about the law of God. He sings about it for 176 verses. He loves the law of God. And... To kind of pull all this together, here's the point. David, I think, was a person who understood the law of God and understood that what it means to obey the law of God is to do what you're supposed to do. If that means take your slingshot and go out after a bear, well, that's what it means. If that means, you know, to stand up to the enemies of Israel that defy God, that's what it means. If that means... To humble yourself all the way down to saying, I'm a miserable wretch, I've lost God, and I need God back. Then that's what it means. And I think David understands that. And and when David comes to the point of Psalm 119, what he is saying is, it's by your law. Now you'll notice, not... Your Bible, not your word, even though that's used throughout here, but your law. The things you command. The things you order me to do. That's what I love. And I love it because it gives me a great advantage in life. It teaches me what I need to know. It tells me how to be a happy individual. Have you ever known anybody that was unfaithful to God? And that drifted away from God and got themselves all involved in sin and their life was a wreck. And then they humbled themselves, like I believe David does here in the Word of God. And they came back to God and they began to live their life according to the Word of God, according to His laws. And they obeyed His laws even when it was very difficult to do so. And when you look at their life after they've started living that kind of life, it's just, a, it's, it's just marvelous. It's magnificent. It's far greater than it was bad when they weren't. Have you ever known anybody that's lived a life like that? Chances are great you have. And David is one of those people. And I think what David is saying is, you know, I understand what it is to sin. And I understand what it means to be away from God 
be separated from God. I understand what it means to cry out to God and say to God, create in me a clean heart because I need you. Don't leave me. I need you. I want you. And then to begin serving God again and grow closer and closer and get to the point of where you look at your life where it is now that you've been faithful as opposed to when you were going away from God and to say, man, I love the law of God. I love what it does for me. And I want you to look at this psalm with me. This is nothing new. And yet you understand that self-control grows out of a, a love, not just a respect for the Word of God, not just a, I've got to do what God says or go to hell. You know, it's not that. Self-control grows out of loving the law of God and everything it does for you to make you a holy individual. David often acknowledged in, in the Word of God the importance of spending time with the Word of God, with the law of God. Notice verse 97 here again. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You may remember a couple of years ago I had a lesson on meditation and I made the point, and if you're looking at your outline, you'll see that there are two words. I didn't really put the words down there. But you'll see there are two different ideas in Scripture for meditation. One of them, like you find here, look back at verse 15 of Psalm 119 in the same chapter. But look back at verse 15 and notice when he says, I will meditate on your precepts and have respect unto your ways. And when he goes on to say in verse 48, uh, wherever 48 is in this, 48, my hands also will I lift up unto your commandments, which I've loved, he said, and I will meditate in your statutes. And this idea of meditation here is the idea of searching something and then musing upon it. He's just really reflecting on it. You're doing an introspective search. You're kind of looking at the Bible like we talked about in the Man in the Mirror series, you know. You're looking at the Bible and you're basically asking a simple question. Is that me? Am I like that? Do I do that in my life? Do I search out what God says? Do I find the precepts, the laws, the principles? And do I really think about them and think about them in conjunction with me? You know, what, what does that mean to me? How does that apply to my life? Well, what's the implication for me in my life? That's what David was saying here. And then there's also the idea of attending to something. Um, really, the idea of studying something as we think of it, mulling it over, literally in the original language, chewing the cud. And like I've said so often, if you think about that old cow out there and she gets a clump of grass... And, you know, some of us down south, we've done this. You know, we've got to watch these cows. Man, they chew that grass forever. And if you know the, the biology behind it, they chew it, swallow it, regurgitate it. Now, I don't want to be too gross here, but they regurgitate it back up and they chew it some more. And they do that again and again and over and over and over. And it's the process that can take green grass and make white milk, you know. But Bible is saying do that with the Word of God. Don't just read it. Reading it is great. But that's not what he's saying here. No, he's saying, notice in, in Psalm 1, for example, if you want to hold your finger here and turn back, when he says in Psalm 1 about the, the righteous person, the, the child of God, and he says, blessed is the man. 
that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You ever bitten into something? One of our members here made Montel and I uh, and Juliet a, a pineapple upside down, down cake for the holidays. Man, can that lady cook. <laughs> I mean, that stuff was good, man. And we bit into that. I bit into that, you know, pineapple upside down cake. And I'm like, oh, man, this is good. And you just savor it. That's what he's talking about doing with the Word of God. David said, I love the law of God. It's good to the taste. It, it looks good. It feels good. It tastes good. It is good. My delight is in the law of the Lord. You know, there are things I eat, and I eat them because they're good for you. Well, you know, some green vegetables. It's not the best tasting thing in the world, but it's good for you. You know? And so you eat it, and it, it's good. You, you delight in it because of the benefits in it. But it ain't no pineapple upside down cake. It don't taste like pineapple upside down cake. No, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And notice this, and in the law does he meditate day and night. And then, of course, the benefit, he's like the tree planted by the waters and all of that kind of thing. So it's the idea of I mull it over and I feed on it perpetually and all of that. When you go to the New Testament, you see that. There's a term in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 15, that says, Meditate, Paul says to Timothy, meditate on these things. You know, the, being the good example in all those different areas and the reading that you do and all of that. Meditate on these things. And the word meditate there literally means just roll it around in your head. Really think on it. Or Philippians 4 and verse 8, when Paul said, if there's anything that's lovely, if there's anything that's of good reputation or good report, anything virtuous, etc., etc., think on these things. And the word think there is the word for, and we don't have this English word, but I'll make it up, it's logisticize. In other words, see the reason in it. Why would God have you to think about things that are of good reputation, good report? Things that are lovely, things that are virtuous. Why think about those things? And you notice the difference. It's not just think about virtuous things when you're thinking about not being virtuous, you know? And you start quoting passages to yourself of don't do this and don't do that because God says so. Now, He's not telling you that there. He's telling you when you've got those quiet moments, when you've got time by yourself, look at what is virtuous. I'll give you an example. A personal one, but I'll give you an example. I love my wife. I love what I have with my wife. You know? And I'm sure there are a lot of people here that can identify with this. I spend time sometimes just by myself thinking about I really love what I have in my home. I want that to go on. I would not want to do this or this that would mess all that up. I think that's what God is saying. You think about what's good. You see it for yourself. You roll it around in your mind. You see yourself a faithful member of the church. You see yourself doing the things you should do. And you see that when it's just you alone somewhere. Now we go back to Psalm 119. And you understand the point here is meditation, time with God's law. That's where self-control begins. Self-control doesn't begin when I'm in the heat of the moment 
and everything is going wrong, and I need an answer, and I run to God. No, it begins with that quiet time alone with God. And when you gain the wisdom, drop down with me to verse 98, wherever I am, 98, and let's read a couple of verses here of what David said. I love your law. And he said, you through your commandments, verse 98, has made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. And I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And I understand more than the ancients or the elders would be the idea, because I keep your precepts. Look at that when David is writing this. And you think about the advantage that the law of God gives a person. I use this sometimes with young people. And the idea of young people, you know, young people always struggle with older people, and there's always the the struggle and the difference. You know, the older person does know a lot, the younger person thinks they know a lot, and there's all of that going on. And what I usually try to say when I'm talking to a young person is, I might know something that can help you, and I might not, but God always does. Go to God. And then if what I'm saying jives with what God is saying, then listen to it. But the, un- the point is, the understanding that's going to get you ahead in life, that's going to come from God. That can come through me because I understand it. But it's going to come from God. And that's what David is saying. David is saying wisdom, the law of God, makes one wise. wise. It gives him True wisdom, real wisdom, if you will. And that only comes with, you know, from time with God and His law. I want you to go with me to a couple of New Testament passages. These are a little more obscure passages, and yet the point is impactful. Look with me at Romans chapter 11 and something Paul was saying here. Now this has to do with the wisdom of God, and it has to do with the whole wisdom of God as it relates to people being saved And it's not, you know, just the Jews, and it's not just, you know, for this point or that point. But it is the fact that people are saved, and they are saved through the magnificent wisdom of God. And I want you to drop down with me in Romans 11, and I want to go to verse 33, when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, we know that verse, a lot of us. We've seen that verse. I want you to notice what he does with it. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, this is kind of like Psalm 19. Who can understand his errors, etc.? It's the deeper things. And who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, I might get carried away with myself and say, boy, you know, I know this book pretty good. You know nothing. You know nothing that begins to approach the mind of God. This is only a glimpse of the mind of God. The mind of God is an unapproachable light in the state of being a human being, and you are not going to know it until you get in His presence. And so Paul says this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been God's counselor? Oh, we think we are. People think they can tell God exactly the way God ought to think. And if the Bible says differently, well, I think, Who's been God's counselor? Whoever suggested and got away with it, whoever suggested anything to God to change His Word, His law. Notice Paul goes on. 
Who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? You ever given somebody something, you know, let them in on something, gave them, you know, a point of knowledge, or told them something they didn't know before, etc., and they wouldn't know what they know, and they wouldn't get ahead, perhaps, in life a little bit if they hadn't gotten it from you. And what Paul is saying is, whoever did that for God, like, yeah, God, I'll let you in on that, didn't I? We did good. Whoever did that? And he goes on with it. For of him, verse 36, and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. That's what David is saying. If I know anything, if it gives me any advantage, if there's anything that is great, it came from God. Go with me a few pages to 1 Corinthians 1. Now, Wes taught this sometime back at Wendy's and did an excellent job with it. And I'm not going to try to reteach everything here, but go down to the end of 1 Corinthians 1 and notice when Paul says, and where did I say I wanted to begin? Now, I'll start in 28. When he says, and base things of the world. And he's talking about what is wisdom that really to the world wouldn't seem like it's very wise. So base things of the world and things which are despised or looked down on, and literally in the original, when he says, has God chosen, yea, and things which are not. They're just nothing. And you know how the world thinks. The world sees certain things as being great and important and certain people as being the same. And then there are another group of people, and they're not too important. And what they do in life is not too important. We note, and it was mentioned this morning, about the passing even of people on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, some notable people. And the world takes notice of such a person. They die, and they talk about their accomplishments, and they see them as great people. And, and I'm not, you know, taking anything away from that. I mean, there are very gifted people out there, and they do big things, great things. But the world rarely takes notice of the individual that takes his or her abilities and all their life gives that to God. And does things in their life that as far as God is concerned, that was the wisest thing you could have done. The greatest choice you could have made was to use what you have for me. And that group of people who are Christians, who have chosen to follow the principles of God, the law of God, and seen wisdom in it. It's wise to listen to God. I'm not going to try to come up with my own philosophy of life and then try to tell you that my philosophy is great because I'm great. I'm not doing that. I'm going to look to God and say, God, what is your philosophy of life? And if I follow that perfectly, boy, I've done something. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's the things the world would count as base, really almost worthless. And as he goes on to say, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus. Think about that statement there. Of him are you in Christ Jesus. If it weren't for Him, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't know what I know. I wouldn't do the things I do. And I wouldn't gain all the advantages I gain. As he goes on to say here, Who of God has made unto us wisdom. Jesus is the personification of wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And there's our word. 
sanctification, holiness, and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. For Ephesians 1 and verse 8, he has abounded unto us in all wisdom and prudence. And go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3. And notice when he says down in verse 10, to the intent that now under principalities and powers in the heavenlies might be known by the church. The church. That group of people that is often not seen as being too great in this world. By the church, the manifold wisdom of God. When we look at God's people, God's people going to the Word of God, God's people loving the law of God, we see greatness. And we see it because that's the group of people who has, if you will, bought into what God has to say. And it makes them wiser than anyone. Now go down to the next point that he makes in verse 104. When he says, through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is interesting. Because we get direction from the word of God. I don't know which way to go. We we say that a lot of times. I'm not sure what decision to make. I don't know which way to go. I don't know which path to take. I don't know which career choice to make. And all those kinds of questions. A lot of that is personal. A lot of that is personal judgment. And it's not necessarily that there's a right and wrong. But if you remember, there was a lesson Wes did from Ecclesiastes. And it talked about making those choices, but making them understanding how they're going to affect your life. And understanding how they'll affect the end of your life. And what David is saying here is, I trust you, God, and I I trust the direction that your word gives me. It enlightens my path. It guides me on the right path. Uh, I get understanding. I get discernment. I know how to make good decisions. I know how to discern between what's right and what's wrong. Now, there are a lot of difficult things in life. And we face a lot of difficult situations and choices and circumstances of life that are beyond us. They're just greater than we are. You know, things that we do, things other people do, things that just happen because of, and I think it's just the coincidence of that's the way the world is. But there are things that are so far beyond us, and yet we can turn to God and make the right choices that we're capable of making but make them because we're skilled in the law of God. I love your law. I love the fact that it puts me on the right path. I love the fact that it gives me direction. That I'm not just wandering around out here trying to get through life because I really, like everybody else, don't have a clue. I have a clue. And I don't feel arrogant in saying that. I have a clue. The clue is, I'm on this earth to search for God, find God, serve God, and then go to be with God forevermore. That's my clue. And I think that puts us way ahead of so many people that don't have a clue and live their life accordingly. I want you to go over with me. You can hold your finger here. I'm coming right back. But go over with me to Hebrews 5. Now, this again will be a passage that you know, undoubtedly, you know very well, but yet listen to what he's saying here. 
The writer of Hebrews, down in Hebrews 5, and I'm just going to start in verse uh, 12. When from the time you ought to be teachers, notice that, because you do know some things. And you know some things that are very important. So you should be teachers. But you have need that one teach you again. The first principles of the oracles of God. And you're become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. Now he goes on to point out in verses 13 and 14. For a person like David, I love your law. And I meditate on your laws day and night and all of that. That's the person who eats strong meat spiritually. And what he says in verse 13 is everyone that just uses milk. Of course, infants are the only ones who live on milk, right? So everyone that just uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness and he's a baby. But notice verse 14 and and hear the impact of verse 14. Strong meat belongs to those who are of full age. Grown up in God. Mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Of course, I preach for a while on that passage. I won't. But let's make a simple point. What David is saying is, it gives me direction. I know where I'm going because I have the law of God. I understand the choices I need to make. And I don't have to frantically scramble around, scurry around, trying to find an answer when the hardest things in life come. I know what the answer is. Sometimes the answer is, I'm never going to understand this. So God, you're going to have to take care of this. Sometimes the answer is, okay, that's hard. But I know what I've got to do. And sometimes the answer is, I understand. God already told me that that was a very real possibility that could happen. But you see, you're skilled. And you're a person who understands. That's why David said, I love your law. It just keeps me going on the straight path, the right path. It gives me direction. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that show us. But I want to look at a couple in, in the books of First and Second Peter. And it will just be one verse in each one. Turn with me to First Peter 2. Now you'll hear Wes and I turn to... 1 Peter 2 quite a bit, because there's a lot about what we're talking about in Peter. But I want you to go down to verse 9. You, Christians, who love the law of God, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. But I'm interested in the second part of the verse. Notice what he says. Who should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love your law, God. Because it's a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my feet. A lamp unto my path. It shows me the right direction. It gives me direction. It is a marvelous light. It's not that it came from me. It's not that I'm the world's next greatest Aristotle or whatever. It didn't come from me. It came from you. And you are much greater than any Aristotle or anybody like that. It's a marvelous light. And it's mine. It's mine because I came into it. I became part of it. I bought into it. I sold myself out for it. I gave myself to that light and came out of darkness, and it's marvelous. Man, what a life it can produce. Wow, what it can help me to do, to overcome, etc., etc. 
Now turn a page or so over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is a verse we often read to talk about inspiration of the Word of God. Now look down, if you will, 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. You'll see 20 and 21 have to do with inspiration. But go back to verse 19. Peter said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw that. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. That's the word of God. A light shining in a dark place. Now notice, until, and this is the point, until the day dawn and the day star, and that would be Jesus, the day star arises in your hearts. So what are you saying, Peter? Are you saying that if I come to the Word of God and I get closer and closer to the Word of God, that I do what David did, meditating on the Word of God, that that's when Jesus will begin to ascend to the throne in my heart. That's exactly what he said. And you will be set on the path of right. That's self-control. Finally, and, and I won't spend a long time with this. This is very simple. But David said, you know, you've got all kinds of threats, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of things that would lead you astray. But let's read it. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, Psalm 119, 105, a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, make me alive, O Lord, according unto your word. Accept, I beg you, I beseech you, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. My soul is continually in my hand. It's my choice, and David understood that. Yet do I not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Yet I didn't err. I didn't fall away from your precepts. Your testimonies have I taken as a heritage, an inheritance. That's my inheritance in life. Your laws. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes always, even unto the end. Now we'll... Verse 113, read it with me. I hate vain thoughts. I don't know if you ever have any of those, but I do. Vain thoughts, things that aren't profitable, things that are of no value, no worth whatsoever, things that will get you into trouble. I hate them, David said. But your law, that's what I love. And he goes on to say here, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope. Notice that. I hope in your word. I'm going to conclude tonight by asking you a soul-searching question. And this is just for you to ask you. If I said to you, are you going to heaven? What would you say? If I said, do you know that you're going to heaven? What would you say? I won't ask you that. Because I think that's a question you need to ask yourself. And if your answer is anything less than, yes, I'm going to heaven. Yes, I know I am. Then if I ask you the third question, which would be the hardest one, why do you know that? Or how do you know that? If it's anything less than, because I know what God says. 
then let me suggest something to you. In other words, if you're where a whole lot of people are. I don't know. I want to go, but I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I don't think I am. I just don't think I'm good enough. Those are the things you get most times from really good people. And I want to suggest to you that David was someone that if we, and I'm not looking at it tonight, but if we looked at the Psalm 32s and 51s and those kind of passages, that's where David would be. But if we look at Psalms like this, David has come to the point of his assurance of going to heaven. I know it. And I know why. And it's because he doesn't just obey God and His law. He loves it. And that's the difference. Here tonight, and you're not a Christian, you love the law of God, you'll confess your belief in Jesus, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, you can be saved on your way to heaven. Tonight, if you look at your life and you say, I've struggled with loving the law of God, and I want help. I want the Lord to help me to do that. If there's anything for any reason you need to come, please come. Father, stand and stand.